Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Discover more about our wondrous world-class city at the Chicago Architecture Center, now open and adhering to public health safety standards. Plan your staycation exploring two floors of awe-inspiring exhibits. From our interactive city models to skyscrapers that change the world. And learn about the fascinating stories behind the fabulous facades. Book your tickets today at architecture.org. The stories of the city begin at the CAC. How did you go from sharing stories over the years to deciding to write a book? Good question, Mayor. Good question. This Bendrovsky Show Benny J bonus interview is brought to you in part by the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9. The International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150. What's so funny? I just, every time, Lori, like, with a probing question from our mayor. And the Chicago Federation of Labor. <laughs> Benny J, take it away. Bonus time the Ben Jarofsky Show as I speak. It's Thursday, July 9th, 2020. Lord knows when you're listening to this because it's a podcast. Uh, as we do with all our distinguished guests, I ask our distinguished guest to introduce herself. So, distinguished guest, introduce yourself. Uh, I'm Samina Mustafa. I host Hand for the Mic, which is a podcast produced by women of color, censoring women of color. I uh, ran for Congress in the 5th Congressional District of Illinois. Uh, ben voted for me, as he likes <laughs> to remind his listeners. That's correct. Uh, which I appreciate, which I appreciate. Yeah. And I... Uh, I'm still active in local politics and activism and um, I have a lot of opinions as everyone will soon find out. Yes. Samina is a regular on the show and she has a lot of opinions uh, and uh, hand her the mic. You had uh, a coup, right? One of your, yes. uh, before we go further, take the deep dive in the issues of the day, do a little promotion. Talk about uh, some of your, yeah. go ahead. Yeah, so I've been uh, doing the podcast since December of last year, and I just recorded an interview yesterday. It'll post in two weeks with Zerlina Maxwell, who was on the Clinton campaign, was on the Obama campaign. She has her own show on Sirius XM Radio. She is she released a book two days ago called The End of White Politics. And so she's on a book tour, and so I got to interview her and talk to her about the book and her career. So... Um, just FYI, Ben and Dennis, white politics is over. <laughs> it's over. Turn down. It's the over lights. for you. <laughs> All right, I'm applying it's to McDonald's right now. Hold on. <laughs> Amazon. Gotta can't get a job. Shh. Uh, that's well, the end of white like, politics. I've had some great. I've had some great conversations, and uh, and and I'll probably reference them. Uh, but one of the ones that was my one of my recent favorites, Jolino's, was great. But Lasaya Wade, who is the executive director of Brave Space Alliance, which is where Steph Cora works, 
remember Seth Gora, mm-hmm. um, was one of my guests last month. And it's a black trans-led organization. And we had a great conversation. And she referenced um, a name that you probably haven't heard, Ben, in probably 30 years, uh, Sister Soldier. Oh, yeah. And, Bill Clinton's yeah, favorite so, singer. Wait, what? Uh, I was being a wise guy. Bill Clinton's favorite singer. Uh, yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. I didn't, I didn't hear what you said. Yes, exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. Um, but, I mean, people only know of Sister Soldier because of that. But not only did Lasaya mention her, but she also referenced uh, in Zerlina's book. So I think there's going to be, just you heard it here, there's going to be a Sister Soldier renaissance. She's actually, I mean, she never went away, but yeah. she never went away. She actually writes books. She's actually a pretty good she's novelist. Yeah. She's a good so. novelist. Yeah. Uh, she has a whole second career as a novelist, which people probably mm-hmm. don't realize. Uh, all right. And uh, uh, Samina gave me an assignment. Usually I'm giving my guests assignments, but she beat me to the punch. Well, before we go further, Samina, where can people find your podcast? Uh, oh, I'm so glad you asked, Dennis. <laughs> <laughs> You're so it, it, it's so Apple Podcast, Spotify, I host it on Libsyn, and then we also have a YouTube channel where we do uh, post clips when we do video interviews um, and also the audio. So we, our YouTube channel is Cantor the Mic on YouTube, and we can be found on Facebook and Instagram, Cantor the Mic, and on Twitter, it's Cantor Mic. Somebody stole Hander the mic, obviously. So mm. we were, so we got spooked. But uh, so thank you, thank you for that, Dennis. Yeah, and uh, podcasting is the future. And Samina's no dope. She is uh, got a great show. All right, now as I was saying, usually I give the assignments. Samina beat me to the punch. She gave me the assignment. Uh, uh, required reading the Nation article by Barbara Rans- Ransby. Uh, she's a historian here at the uh, UIC. White left, I'm trying to read my handwriting, white left needs to embrace black leadership. I'm just going to read a portion of of the article, Samina, and then you go into just a little detail why you think it's so important. Uh, And uh, here's the setup. It's pretty well done. Wait, hold on. I have to find this. I had it all set up. Uh, uh, Another disturbing exemplar of the predominantly white left's challenges with race is Democratic Socialists of America. On the one hand, wow, Trump's election fueled the organization's exponential growth and subsequent electoral victories and campaigns have emboldened it. By presenting candidates and demands that seem common sense to many Americans, DSA has helped to reintroduce socialism into mainstream political discourse. That said, and despite a handful of brilliant leaders in the Afro-Socialist Caucus, DSA is largely devoid of black leaderships at the national level. How can that be acceptable in 2020? Why isn't everyone in the organization worried about the implications or at least the optics? Why hasn't DSA gone into a deep retreat to read, learn, and then propose bold changes that will open the door to black left leadership? If they were unsure who the fiercest and anti-racist organizers of this generation are, they need only to look at the streets of Atlanta, Chicago, Minneapolis, Los Angeles, and New York. And that gives that's the end of that particular passage, but uh, that reflects... Uh, some of the themes uh, raised by Ransby in uh, her article. Uh, talk, Samina, if you will, why you think this is such an important and significant article. 
Well, I want to bring up a few points. Uh, just in that same article, which was posted in The Nation, uh, Barbara Ransby, who was actually a very vocal and active surrogate for Bernie Sanders, uh, mentioned the campaign as, as another example of that. But I think DSA is important in this moment to discuss in a moment when we're talking about organizing and movement work. And a lot of people are getting activated and interested, whether it's, you know, talking about, um, you know, defunding the police or some other uh, issue related um, to, to this moment regarding racial justice. And I think her piece is, is important to, to, to point out that we have an opportunity <laughs> to really become the multiracial coalition and, and have that be a force to reckon with you know, not just electorally, but, you know, to, to make changes here in Chicago and nationally. And I think that that's really a missed opportunity for organizations like DSA. And DSA is by no means the only group that has this problem. Um, they're just probably the one that's benefited the most from, you know, Bernie's campaign, um, AOC's win in 2018, um, I would say that they, and people have said this to me privately, candidates who have run and said, you know, DSA certainly, you know, had brought some volunteers, but they tend to take credit um, for a lot of these electoral wins. And I know just from knowing a couple of DSA members, they have a lot of tension within the organization of how much are we going to do in terms of electoral politics versus other work? And as someone who's attended a couple of different events and actually tried to organize and do some movement work, I've had some folks who are great. They get it like, hey, we are here to support. We have uh, resources. We have volunteers. And in other cases, I feel like what they're doing, um, and I can't remember off the top of my head if this is referenced in, in, on Dr. Ramsey's article, is they just want to put a, um, a black or brown face on a white-led action. And that, to me, is a really big problem on the left. I've, I have been bringing up this issue of white supremacy on the left, you know, for years now. And it's, I, and DSA, gets, DSA leaders get incredibly defensive about it, and it's, it's not, it's not productive. And sometimes the, the people that are in DSA who are people of color get defensive about it and aren't, don't have the self-awareness to say, oh yeah, this is a problem. Um, I'm thinking there's a very um, prolific writer and activist on Twitter who saw a Chicago DSA organizing picture posted and she noted, she said, that's interesting that there's this picture of all these volunteers in Chicago DSA, and this is an incredibly white picture. Isn't Chicago, you know, a majority, um, like, have a large black mi minority mm -hmm. and, um, and a majority minority city? And all these activists in DSA just started swarming her and attacking her and saying, that's not true. We have, and it's sort of like, they sort of cherry picked, oh, there's this person and that person. And I, I even saw Carlos Rosa coming after this person. And I thought, 
how is this helpful? Like, here it is. Here's like visual example, evidence of the whiteness of DSA. And again, this is not unique to DSA, but, you know, one, why are you being defensive? That is not unique to DSA. Secondly, there was one uh, leader within DSA said, join us and help us fix it. That is the most tired, predictable response from, uh, from a sort of a good white liberal that there is. Come fix the problem that we created. <laughs> the reason why there aren't <laughs> those, you know, there aren't people of color, aren't black folks, brown folks in those organizations is because they get tokenized or they're not listened to. It's not complicated. Um, I'm someone who shows up in a lot of different spaces, some that people might perceive as, you know, sort of traditional or establishment, like I'm, I'm just cycling off the League of Women Voters. You can't get much more sort of like traditional than that. It's a hundred year old organization and has lots of, you know, issues with white supremacy with it. the founder was a white supremacist. So th those responses aren't helpful. And in this moment, when you see um, protest actions being organized by mostly young, black, queer, trans, you know, women and non-binary folks, um, and they're not part of, you know, one of the largest organizations. I think people are ideologically are on the same page, but they're not part of those movements and they have, you know, spaces that, you know, M4BL movement for black lives is actually a coalition of groups, you know, as, as a, as a movement historian and someone who's also active in movement work, I think Dr. Ramsby is, is pointing out a really important um, sort of moment in history and saying, this is a problem and it should be addressed. You know, if we wanted someone like a Bernie Sanders to win the Democratic nomination, um, part of the reason why some of that didn't happen and, you know, the support wasn't broad-based was because of the same issues that I'm talking about with DSA. And again, they're not unique to DSA. I cannot think of a single organization on the left that does not have a problem with white supremacy. Not a single one. That is that is white led, and some of them, even the ones that are people of color led, frankly, because the people who are put in those leadership positions aren't in it, aren't don't have an anti-racist orientation. And so, uh, I think in this moment where we're clearly we've got Joe Biden um, as the Democratic nominee, and there is a there it was has been an attempt by uh, Bernie uh, campaign folks to work with Biden and to sort of push him on certain issues. It is, quite, you know, it is, it is just staggering that even Bernie Sanders isn't even on the defund police train. You know, <laughs> like, it, it, so again, I just, it, it's frustrating to say the least. Well, when I going back to thinking some, something you mentioned about the uh, Twitter debate, 
and I'm the last person to know anything about a Twitter debate because I don't follow Twitter. Uh, cannot stand Twitter. That's a whole other story, uh, Samina. But let's go back to that Twitter debate. Uh, when the criticism was mentioned, when the photo was displayed as, as Exhibit A, uh, and then there was the blowback response, which is so Twitter. Uh, put that at the list, one of the reasons why I find it so annoying. But anyway, putting, all right. Uh, what, if you were following that debate, what kind of response from the DSA people would you have wel- found as a welcoming sense uh, that they get it? You know, what would you like to have yeah. heard their response? I think this is something that I, I would like to see from not just DSA, but more organizations on the left. An acknowledgement that this is a problem First of all, because that was one of the biggest issues with that sort of Twitter storm is that they wouldn't admit that there was a problem. It's like, oh, they just weren't there that day. You know, it's like, no, there's a problem. We created it. We caused it. Responsibility. Take responsibility for it. And we're not going to make it your problem to fix. We're not going to shut you out when you give us feedback, but we're not going to make it your problem to fix. That's one of the things that drove me absolutely up a wall is when I saw it was a white woman who responded, join us and help us fix it. No. No. Why would we, why would I spend my free time and some of my money to join an organization that has a history of marginalizing my voice. Why would I do that? And, you know, I'm not a member, and there's a reason I'm not a member. You know, just recently, just in the last week, I saw um, a gentleman, I'm I'm blanking on his name, he's in Atlanta. Atlanta! (laughs) The chair of uh, Metro Atlanta DSA just stepped down and did a public letter stepping down. And once again, it's the same thing the same like I was used as a token and so um, you know there there was one person who is a person of color identifies as a person of color um, who I follow and I I don't I didn't have a conversation with him about it but I appreciate that he at least acknowledged it Kenzo Shibata who is um, a, a teacher and a member of TCU he said you know we do need to address it I don't know what his role in DSA is to to, to address it, and the vast majority of people who I uh, who are organizers with DSA are are white that I see, and actually they're white and male. And so, um, again, it's not just about DSA. This is an issue that I I perceive across the board, and it, it does have an impact on um, on policy. It has an impact on electoral outcomes. Um, you know, I, I'll give you my own anecdote. Uh, I'll give you two. When I was running for Congress and I um, was presenting to DSA uh, for an endorsement, I knew it was kind of unlikely because I'm, I'm not a member, but I know that they have endorsed non-members. Larry Krasner in Philadelphia, who's the, uh, um, the district attorney there, was not a member. Somehow they figured out how to endorse a white man. Go figure. Um, 
but I attended their executive committee meeting. And I'll be honest, I didn't even know that they had a person of color on the executive committee. Um, because I, and the only way I found out is that I reached out to her and met with her subsequently. Because she did not speak in that meeting. <laughs> there were several executive committee members who asked me questions, and she was not one of them. So I don't even know in, in her, you know, to be, to be frank, she was so white presenting, I didn't know that she was a person of color. So that's one. Uh, second, I was working with an activist who's in DSA, and I think it has good intentions of working on some immigration work and wanted to get the endorsement of some immigration organization. So I convened, uh, I got some, some folks who were either policy folks or executive directors of immigration organizations, and we all sat in a, in a meeting um, with their immigration committee. And they started to explain what their campaign was, which is ongoing. And it was very clear that they weren't interested in a dialogue. They basically wanted us to come there to be their brown rubber stamp. Mm. And I said, that's not going to happen. Can you, can you, um, I think you have more work to do here. And I got this look like, they, they kind of didn't know what to do with that response. They really thought we were just going to say, oh, wow, thank you, white people, for being on our side. No, that's not how this works. We are sentient beings with our own ideas, and we don't agree with your strategy. We don't agree with your approach. And after that meeting, they um, had made some commitments to, to follow up, and to take certain actions, and they broke a number of those promises. So, again, this is not about DSA, but I, I, I was really struck by the fact that, again, Dr. Ramsby is a movement historian. She's done a book on Ella Baker. She's done a book on um, the BLM movement, Making All Black Lives Matter. She knows this work, and she's active in it. So for her to come, and she was a Bernie surrogate, so for her to come out and make this statement specifically about Bernie and DSA was, I, I thought, really powerful. And I, I mean, I encourage you to have her on to, to talk about it. But as someone who is, I, you know, and I will admit, you know, I'm not, I'm not black. I'm a brown Muslim woman. But I'm in these spaces as a person of color and a person who does not often show up in these spaces. And I... Um, and I'm interrogating people's assumptions about how they should operate. If, in fact, they believe in the things they say they believe in. And um, it's, again, I see it in so many different organizations, but this is an organization that tends to be, you know, take, it take, they take up a lot of space and they tend to take credit for winning campaigns that are led by people of color and when people question them on things like diversity they sound just like the establishment folks frankly um i keep thinking that you know it's you can talk about revolution all the time but you are clearly committed to incrementalism within your organization which is not acceptable samina i just want to go back to did you get their endorsement no, I did not. 
So they took no endorsement. It was you against Mike Quigley and they just took no endorsement? Yep. That's, I mean, but the, again, I know that there is a debate with it. Like, again, I, <laughs> this is not about whether they endorse me or not. This is how they have operated on issues, um, you know, related to racial justice and how they've treated people of color, you know, nationally and locally. Right. Again, going to Dr. Ransby, this isn't about me. We're having seen the same thing happen in Metro Atlanta. Yeah. No, I, I, I understand it's a slightly different issue, but uh, I don't know. I, my frustration with Chicago lefties is endless. All right, let's uh, let's move on to a different topic. We have a couple, few more topics I want to talk to you about. Uh, that's on my list, my agenda here to talk to Samina about. And um, you said something interesting. I've been uh, asking everybody their opinion about the Supreme Court rulings of the last two days. Uh, the, the one today, as I speak today, it's Thursday, July 9th. They released their ruling, uh, which is supposed to be a great triumph for the division of the checks and balances system, the division of branches, all I know is that somehow or other when the smoke clears, uh, Donnie Trump doesn't have to release his taxes until after the election if he's going to release them at all. So excuse me, Samina, if I'm a little jaded and cynical about the Supreme Court and its ruling. And the other one had to do on contraceptives. Somehow or other when the smoke clears, uh, people uh, have a right to discriminate if the religion tells them so. That's interesting. Um What's your take? What's your main takeaway from these two Supreme Court rulings? Um, I, 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 the Supreme Court. I mean, the Supreme Court is not a neutral body, right? It's it's a political body, and um, both of these decisions are deeply political, right? And Trump is not going to be held accountable by this court. And it is really dangerous that it's scary how much um, has been left to the court when it comes to reproductive um, choice. So uh, I, I think... These kinds of, I mean, this is essentially the same. Uh, but the irony is, if you go back, and I, I haven't read a lot on this, but I know just enough. But you know, it's Democrats and your favorite, Rahm Emanuel. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say Nancy Pelosi. <laughs> you know what? <laughs> you got two. You got two favorites. And, okay. um, but your local favorite. Okay, yeah. Your local favorite. Mm -hmm. Your buddy, your pal, Rahm Emanuel. Take a chill pill, man. Yeah, come on, take it. <laughs> what is Yeah, my good friend, Rahm. Go ahead. Yeah, no, no. Just, I mean, like, he had a hand. In, it, it, 
how he approached, you know, reproductive birth, birth control within the ACA, you know, that's like, we keep, my, my other point I want to make, so the Supreme Court is a political body. Yeah. The other point I want to make is Trump is kind of the best thing that happened to people like Ron because <laughs> they look less awful. Okay. Um, I mean, Ron was not, is, is, it was problematic on choice. I mean, he recruited uh, anti choice candidates to run. He was trying to get, you know, get that out of the ACA. I mean, it's just, and, and everyone can focus on the Supreme Court and Trump and, and what have you, but let's be clear, like, it is, let's not erase history and forget yeah. that Democrats have been bad on this. Um, Nancy Pelosi in 2018 endorsed your other favorite, endorsed Dan Lipinski mm. in yeah. 2018. Yeah. Right? So, I mean, Everybody wants to make it about Trump. Everybody wants to make it about the Republicans. But sorry, you you know, people don't forget this stuff. So, and as I as I pointed out, uh, two of the judges, uh, two of the justices who voted uh, on the uh, religious opt out on birth control, are Democrats, uh, Elena Kagan and Stephen Breyer. So. Important to point that out. It was seven to two, and they joined uh, the, the Republic. No, it's very. Um, you're right. I that point you made is a very good one. Uh, the Supreme Court is not a neutral body; it's a political body, and uh, they protected Trump. The in this. fact that so much of this, the fact that so much of this is being left up to the court, mm-hmm. and that Trump has appointed two hundred federal judges. Uh, is like this is where <laughs> we need to have a little bit more imagination about how to reform our system. I was actually listening to a podcast. Um, I can't remember the name of the, the book. Um, the, the guy's name is Sandy. I'll find it. Um, Sanford is his first name, but he goes by Sandy. And it was on a podcast called Seen on Radio. I'll look it up. Um, where he talked about how to reform the Supreme Court. One, I mean, there's plenty of people who um, want to have ideas, whether it's having more justices. But one of his uh, suggestions was to um, have a term, essentially a term for justices. Mm-hmm. And so it's a... Um, you'd have, I think it's an 18-year term, and then every two years, one of them uh, would uh, have to retire. So any given four-year presidential term, a president would have at least the opportunity to appoint two justices. You couldn't really have um, one president pack a court, per se. Um, but, you know, I mean, obviously, that's, that's not going to happen today but like that's the kind of stuff where i feel like oh sandy levinson that's who it is mm-hmm. um he teaches at university of texas um yeah i mean that's what we you know we need folks to really think about how do we um take in the, 
instead of being on the defense all the time, how are we uh, anticipating? Like, getting rid of the filibuster. All these things are are part of that. Um, But we're not going to. We're always sort of operating um, in a reactive position. And um, so that's, I mean, I think that's the last piece is like, we, we need to come in with, with more than a, we're just either going to try to come in the middle, which I, I still don't understand the concept of bipartisanship with this GOP. I don't get it. Yeah, no, it, it's a, it's fictitious. How many kids do you want in cages? Yeah. Fifty percent of the kids in cages. I mean, like, what? What does that even mean? It's, it's absurd. Yeah, it's a, a, it's it's fiction. Uh, the, just the notion of bipartisan in this era, in this Trump era, uh, is is just a myth that gets. Uh, but that's how. But that's what Nancy Pelosi keeps your other favorite. <laughs> no, keeps saying, "Oh, this is bipartisan," uh, and it's like it's not. It doesn't mean anything. All right. Never, ever say anything bad about Nancy Pelosi. No, just kidding. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm going to do <laughs> You just, the cardinal rule. We love Nancy Pelosi. No, I have a. Where's your Kente Swamp? Where's your Kente Swamp? <laughs> you know what, Benny? Uh... Benny J. Show Kente Swamp. Okay, Dennis, put this on your. your... <laughs> uh you you need to get uh, masks made and stoles made. <laughs> All right, they'll be coming in with the uh, they'll be coming in with the Lori Lightfoot light bulbs. Oh yes, the Lori Lightfoot light bulbs. Oh well, a beautiful transition, Dennis. Uh, let's let's switch gears. Get your thoughts on some local issues. Uh, you mentioned that you had a few things to say about police and schools, which is something we've been talking a lot about on the show lately. Uh, the whole debate on whether Chicago should have police in schools. Uh, your thoughts on this subject. Okay, so I'm, this is not a great response for radio, but no, we don't need police in schools. It's actually really simple. Um, but, I mean, across the country, we have seen cities and mayors take this time. And some people have pointed out a couple of structural reasons why Chicago is in a different position. One of them is the fact that we don't have um, in, a truly independent elected school board. Um, you know, there was a, a vote taken. Just, uh, was it, I don't even time is hard to track, but I thought it was a week ago. It might have been two weeks ago, where a whole bunch of people were lobbying. Um, the appointed members of the school board um, to get them to to um, to vote out the schools, and it was close. It was four to three, and um, right now it's it's being handled by the local school councils. And I think I mentioned to you on the phone, Ben, is that I feel like this is a a case where the school board members, at least some of them, clearly are deferring to the mayor and not trying to incur for wrath, which appears to be uh, bottomless. <laughs> and and uh, and didn't vote for it. But there's apparently another vote coming up. But in the meanwhile, we have had a couple of local school councils 
um, vote to remove what they're calling, they're actually called school resource officers, which are all kinds of euphemistic, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's a, a remarkably euphemistic uh, term. <clears throat> and uh, some people have commented that it's interesting that the, the schools that are either whiter or not majority black so far are the ones that have done it. And they're very concerned that this is going to create another uh, deepening of the inequity in Chicago schools where it's more likely if it's a majority black school that there will be police officers and in the whiter schools like Northside College Prep, Mm -hmm. one of the top high schools in the state, probably in the nation, um, has voted to take police officers out of their schools. And that's one of the whiter schools. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I think it was reported by this one time, uh, whiter schools in the, in the network. But it's also, you know, one of the most competitive schools to get into. So, yeah, so the smart kids that are mostly white and Asian and there's very few black and brown kids, that's where we don't need police. And you can already see the problems with that. So, um, again, um, I, I think, you know, there are, there are students in, like, I didn't go to a Chicago public high school and went to um, a Catholic high school, but I went to a CPS grade school. And, uh, yeah, I can't, I just can't imagine uh, I just can't imagine that, but it is a reality for so many kids to go through metal detectors and have um, have a police officer. I feel like it's it's really uh, this is a case of Lori Lightfoot hunting a little bit, and but she's also clearly making her wishes known to the school board which she's been very much anti the activist movement in Chicago, mm. even during her campaign. And uh, there was a whole stop license campaign. And they, they actually started to say, do we need to, do we need to get that, get the, get the, uh, the crew back together? Because she's, you know, she's fighting something that's now gained a, acceptance in cities across the country yeah i just want to just i just have i have the sun time story in front of me uh north side prep the 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 breakdown is uh i'm doing this right here uh it is it's hard to read 31 percent white uh 31 percent latino and 19 percent asian and about six percent black so, uh, and okay. what, what, how does the white percentage at Northside College Prep compare to the rest of the system? And that's the point I was just about to say. Uh, the system wide, Chicago is about 11% white. So, uh, there's far more white people, white kids at Northside Prep, uh, than there are system wide at five, uh, far greater the concentration. Black, and, what's the black percentage? 
I just got the six percent uh, at Northside Prep and a system one. It's amazing. I have this information right in front of me. I, I should just pretend as though I just know this. Well, you know, Samita, I know everything. I'm the answer man. Uh, the Thirty Nine Steps. You ever see that movie, The Thirty Nine Steps? There was this guy in the movie who knows everything. And anyway, uh, I'm sorry, I went on a tangent. Uh, citywide, the uh, population is about thirty six percent black. And it's only 6% in Northside Prep. So, yeah, your point is a good one. That Northside Prep is not um, representative in its student body of the uh, citywide totals. I've been going on and on about this issue. I cannot resist this moment just to interject my personal beliefs about this. Uh, there's an ongoing financial scam on top of the issue of whether there should be police in school. Because the actual vote that the Board of Education was taking on this matter a week ago had to do with terminating an intergovernmental agreement between the Board of Education and the Chicago Police Department uh, in which the Board of Education agreed, I'm not making this up, people, it's the city of Chicago, these are the people you elected uh, who uh, run this city. The Board of Education had agreed to take $33 million that you give it every year and turn it over to the police department. That's the agreement that the Board of Education reached. Somehow or other, they thought it was in the best interest of students in the city of Chicago that they would take $33 million out of their school budget, money that could have been spent on anything. They could have hired Samina to come in, teach, I don't know, podcasting skills or something, uh, or political science. But nope, they decided to take $33 million and pass it to the police department budget. So at the very least, I'm going to implore one more time, my dear friends at the Board of Education, starting with you, uh, former State Senator Miguel Devaya, who I've known since about 1985, please, at the very least, terminate this deal. Why are you giving $33 million to the police department? They're f the city council is filled with people who will support the police department's budget. So there's no shortage of votes in the Chicago City Council to support the police department. I don't know why the school's children of Chicago should be picking up the cost of police officers. Sorry, Samina, I just could not resist. All right. I just, it's like yeah. Pavlov oh, no. and his I dog mean, when I hear this, uh, cause that's, that's very rarely discussed. It comes down to, well, this school voted to kick out its cop. This school wants to keep it. But do you know, Northside prep, they got rid of those two, Police officers, all right, they made that big vote. There's a full-page article in the Sun-Times about it. They don't get any extra money for that. It's not like the Board of Education says, okay, Northside Prep, you just got rid of two police officers, so let's figure out what the proportion of the budget is that we are now going to send to you so you could hire Dennis to teach podcasting skills or Samina to teach political science. Do you follow what I'm saying? They, well, you just lost two cops and. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and that I think is, yeah. So, I mean, there's so many things that are related to this that are, so Miguel Del Valle, who, you know, you know, his history uh, better than I do, but you know, he ran as a reformer. Right. Um, and, you know, Lori Lightfoot ran as a reformer, um, and she, you know, Lori had all this backing from sort of the Harold Washington allies, right, people who were um, either part of his campaign or part of his, uh, you know, sort of supporters, uh, the opposite of the Bordoli Act 29, as it were. And, you know, yet 
every at every turn on this issue, you know, Lori has uh, resisted reform or poo-pooed it or just attacked the the activists calling for reform. And it's you know, I, I keep to, you know, when are those folks going to chime up and you know and say, yeah, this is wrong. We don't agree with this. Um, instead, you know, it's been like, oh yeah, we're okay with with Lightfoot taking, you know, emergency action and control and, and, sent, and essentially taking away any power that the city council had to check her. Yeah. Um, so it, it's this, this whole period, even prior to um, the protests in Minneapolis and nationally, you know, when we were just dealing, when we were just dealing with the coronavirus. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's wait, like, I cannot let this moment pass without updating you on something, all right? I just, when you said coronavirus, I had to say that. So, folks, let me just go back to a conversation I had with Samin on the phone the other day as I was setting up this interview, and we were talking about walking. Both of us are walkers, okay? We're both walkers, and we walked in. I, I, I think I walk a little later during the day than you do. And Samina guilt tripped mm-hmm. me. She told me, Ben, you should be wearing your mask more when you're walking. And I'm trying to break out. Well, you know, when I'm walking down this, I almost took a picture and sent it to you, Samina. But I didn't want to, like, m- m- uh, mess up my walk. I was on a really good vibe, you know, by taking a picture. But there was nobody on the street. So okay. Samina was saying to me, Ben, you should be wearing your mask anyway. But I'm like, Samina, there's nobody on the street. Absolutely no one. Why should I be wearing a mask? But... I just wanted to let you know that since we had that conversation, I've been wearing my mask much more when I go for my walk. It's like your voice is in the back of my mind. Wear your mask. Thank you. Uh, thank you. If I just got one person, <laughs> one person to wear a mask, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. I'm, I, I'm actually like, I'm touched. I'm touched because I feel like, I okay, we live in the same ward. We live in Matt, Morton, Matt Martin's 47th ward. Yes. And I know that he has distributed masks, and so he's, you know, he's been pushing the, the mask message, uh, and I think he's been doing a good job on that. Yeah. But our ward... Terrible. <laughs> Absolutely was, terrible. If there was a poll on compliance, I think we would fail it. Yes. Our, a lot of people walking around without masks. Absolutely. And so, for the record, anytime I come anywhere near another human being, the mask goes on. But then I was walking down the street, yes, I'm like... Even Samina would allow me not to wear them. There was literally no one. And I was like, as far as I could see, nobody. So I have to confess, I mean, I did not wear a mask at that moment. Okay. But well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring it. I'm going to do a callback to our earlier conversation about racial justice. And the fact that we live in a town that is roughly two-thirds people of color. Mm-hmm. And this, this virus has been particularly, um, you know, fatal um, to black and brown folks. And so my, my attitude is, you know, we live in a, uh, a diverse city. You know, maybe our particular pockets are less diverse than others, but I am always walking and seeing people who may be, um, you know, maybe they're literally just delivering something or they're, you know, uh, here for you know a brief period and i'm thinking like okay i don't know their condition they don't know my condition but if we both wear masks we're in a better we're, we're in better you know we're in better shape 
But I literally walk out my door and I see people walking dogs. I see people with strollers, with, with you know, yeah. small kids, and they're not wearing masks. And I'm thinking, people are, people are acting like this is over. That's what's actually really uh, scary to me, is that people are, are sick of it and acting like it's over. And it's not. Yeah. And, my, and my mother, I have to like, um, I think you know this, but uh, my mother spent over 30 years working at the Uptown Clinic, the Chicago Department of Public Health. And I myself worked at a clinic, so I am like, I have no problem with any of this, like mask compliance. I'm like, once they, they said start wearing masks, I'm like, that's it. I wore a scarf, and then when I could, when I got my mask, I started wearing a mask. And my uh, request of anyone who's listening to this is wear a mask at all times when you are around people outside of your uh, immediate household. You just never know. Well, a friend of mine just diagnosed with cancer. He didn't know he had cancer when coronavirus started. Now he's got it. Now, so I'll, I uh, so anyway, I took your words to heart. Uh, and but the big, I thought you were going to raise this, and I'll close down the conversation. But the big problem are the people who step out of alleys when you don't see them coming. You're not wearing your mask, and so I'm walking down the street yeah. going, "Oh, Samina, there's no reason to put the mask on. You're literally not there. I'm just thinking it. Samina, there's no reason for me to put the mask on." And then out of the corner steps somebody. I'm like, "Oh, that's what Samina was talking about." Anyway, <laughs> uh, anyway, Samina, it's a blast as always talking to you. Uh, Henry, yeah, thank you. Hand her the mic is uh, the name of her show, and you can tell she's really kicking into gear. She's got some great guests. Uh, Samina Mustafa uh, ran for Congress in 2018. For a while, she was a comedian. People don't know that, uh, but it's true. Uh, and she's a political activist extraordinaire. Thanks, Samina, for coming on. I appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Take care, everybody. Rediscover our fascinating city this summer on a walking tour from the Chicago Architecture Center, now open and adhering to public health safety standards. Our entertaining and expertly trained docents will guide you through the Chicago you've been longing to explore, from magnificent downtown architecture to awe-inspiring neighborhood gems. If it's worth seeing, we'll take you there. Get tickets at architecture.org forward slash tours. The stories of the city begin at the CAC.